Our children are dismissed for their time of worship as we continue here joining together in prayer. Let's pray together. God, no matter the beauty of the location or the eloquence of the preacher or the great music that is offered, services of worship are filled with people who are tired and weary and wanting to come home. May we, as your children, hear that sacred voice of love now that beckons, that woos us to be the people that you dream us to be. In the name of love made flesh, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Our gospel reading this morning is almost like the original setting to that classic movie starring Sidney Poitier, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Normally, people who are adversaries stay at arm's length. They keep to their own. They take in and associate themselves with select people so as not to be given opinions or information that might conflict with what we already think. And so I'm impressed, frankly, that the Pharisee, the religious leader, the establishment person of the day, would invite this social and institutional critic and prophet named Jesus to come into his home and share a meal. It's, it's impressive. We don't do that very often. And it becomes the scene for a very important breakthrough. They're gathered as uh, the custom would be, as men with the women elsewhere, when suddenly into the room comes a woman not to serve but rather to encounter Jesus. Luke describes her as a sinner. Maybe she was a prostitute. Maybe she had broken one of the commandments by burning her husband's dinner. We don't know. But by her actions, we infer that she's a broken person. And we also infer that Jesus and she have had an encounter before where Jesus saw her and understood her cared about her situation, and blessed her. How different would that have felt from the encounters that she was used to with men? Perhaps her father, perhaps her husband, perhaps a stranger who either used her or ignored her. And so she comes in. She crashes the dinner party in order to bring a gift. What does she have? It reminds me of the story of the Magi, the wise men coming to Jesus with the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, bringing what they have to God, to the Holy One. Or the story of the little boy with the loaves and the fishes who offers what he has to Jesus when there's need for a miracle. She comes bringing what she has. She brings her body. But she brings it in a radically different way than she's used her body in the past. Now she brings her tears, whether they're tears of joy or fear or remorse, we don't know. But she brings her tears and she uses them to wet Jesus' feet. She uses her hair to dry his feet. She uses her lips to kiss his feet. 
She uses the ointment that she would normally use on herself to make her attractive. She uses it on Jesus and his feet. The prophet of old said, how beautiful are the feet are those who bring the good news to the people. Well, the host of the dinner is offended. He gets huffy and thinks to himself, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this was touching him, that she is a sinner. And let me stop us very quickly and remind us that we are programmed in church to view the Pharisee as the bad guy. Anytime you hear Pharisee, there's a tendency in our minds to go, boo, Pharisee. We got to remember, the Pharisee is playing our part. The Pharisee is the person who shows up for the community gathering each weekend and is present and accounted for. The Pharisee, by all standards, is the good person in the room. And he's doing what you and I do all the time. He's making judgments. We make judgments as easily as we breathe. It just happens effortlessly, relentlessly. We look at what you're wearing, what you say, what you do, what color your skin is, who you love, how you talk, how you act, and we make judgments. The Pharisee is doing what we do every day. She's a sinner, he concludes. Jesus isn't living by the protocols that would make him a prophet. End of story. It's great when life is that clear cut. When there are such clean categories. But that's not life. I love that Jesus responds to this Pharisee, not with contempt, I believe, but with love. Simon, he says, he calls him by name. Simon, I've got a story for you. Tell it. So Jesus tells this little story about a creditor who has two debtors. One owes a great deal of money, one who owes a lot less money. Neither one of them are able to pay. And the creditor, for some amazing reason, forgives both of their debts. Now, Jesus said, which one will love the creditor more? Simon answers, well, I suppose the one with the greater debt. Jesus says, you have judged rightly. Then he says, do you see this woman? He's not speaking literally here. Of course, Simon sees her. He's already criticized her. But Jesus is asking, do you see her? Do you... Do you really see who she is and what's behind her life? Can you see her story? Can you see her pain? Can you see the challenges that she has faced? Can you possibly understand what's behind this really sensual act of gratitude and humility? Do you see this woman? Jesus is concerned about Simon's spiritual nearsightedness. For Jesus knows that to be whole, to live life at its fullest, 
we have to see the world rightly. In Matthew, he says, the, the eye is the lamp of the body. If the, if the eye is not seeing right, you're not going to live right. He wants Simon to live life at its fullest, to see the world as it really is. In a book called Welcome to Paradise, it's a story of refugees that have queued up together up in Morocco, just on the border, hoping someday to cross that magical Strait of Gibraltar and into what they would consider paradise in Europe. Welcome to Paradise tells the story of five of these refugees and some of their backstory. One of them, having gotten to Morocco, finds himself actually envious of a homeless man because the homeless man is not being hunted for by the police. The homeless man has the liberty to come and go wherever he wants, to which the homeless man replies, my friend, the day that you reach my level of decay, you will find that no one cares where you come from or where you're going. They won't care whether your papers are in order or not in order. They won't even see you anymore. You'll only exist to the extent that you muck up their tidy, perfect world. You're a stain. You're a blemish. They toss coins at you to ease their conscience, and you'll drink their money and ruin yourself further because it's the one thing they want for you to die, to clear off their streets, their metro benches, their pavements that they'll hose down when you're gone. Do you see the woman? Do we see the Naboths in our culture? The people that the system exploits and tosses aside as if they count for nothing. We tend to make them invisible. Recently, I've been asking the question about the men and women, the children, the young people who are behind the clothing that you and I are able to purchase at Kohl's or Target or Macy's or wherever at such cheap prices, are we willing to make them visible? A New York Times article this week said, most people wouldn't hire a child and lock them in the basement, force them to make our clothes, but this is the system that we live in. It's so abstracted as to not see, not See the person. Do you see this woman? Jesus asks. I took a friend this week from out of town. He came in. We decided we would go visit the historic home called Farmington, just down the road from us here. Beautiful home built in the 1812, 1812, I think, designed by Thomas Jefferson, stayed in by Abraham Lincoln, Beautifully preserved, it's a wonderful landscape. It's it's all very, very interesting. But I've never been comfortable going to Farmington because it's one of those many places in our world that was created and sustained and maintained by slaves. We didn't see them as human beings. And even after their emancipation, it has taken a long long time to move them to the place of seeing our fellow human beings 
as men and women. I was so pleased. I hadn't been to Farmington for some years, and I saw a plaque that I'd not seen before. It honors the enslaved men and women who helped create and sustain Farmington after 200 years. The capacity to to see. Do you see this woman? Jesus asked the question not to shame Simon, and I ask it to you and me today, not to shame us, but to invite us into this wholeness of life. To let the Jesus who opens the eyes of the blind open our eyes. To see this woman from her vantage point. To see ourselves and how we deal with this woman. We're reminded that Simon's dismissal of this woman is a projection of his own fears. His own self-doubt. His own self-hatred. And what we feel or what we fail to see in ourselves, we often project onto other people. Can we see ourselves even as we see this woman? And can we see God? And can we get just a glimpse, just even a glimpse of how God sees this world? Richard Rohr reminds us that the only groups that Jesus ever criticized, think about this, the only ones that Jesus ever criticized were the groups and people who excluded others in order to include themselves to keep others away from the always given grace of God. That's what Paul was talking about in that writing from Galatians we read. The grace of God that isn't just, hey, everything's okay. But it's about seeing ourselves and this world in a radically different way that includes everybody. Even the people we don't like. Paul Thorne was in concert here the last week. He has a great song, I don't like half the folks I love. That's true. There are a lot of folks we don't like. And grace goes to them too. My friend Kyle is coming in from Texas this week so that he and I can drive to Nashville for the memorial service for a renegade preacher I talked about last week named Will Campbell. Will Campbell seemed to get a bigger picture of what God had in mind. Kyle was a young preacher, country church in Texas, the first time he read a book by Will Campbell. At last he had found a soulmate, he thought. Kyle was in a tough place. He was in a church that was uh, unwilling to let black people in. He even brought a, a, a product of the mission field who was a student with him from Baylor University, brought him to the church to speak for their mission offering promotion, and the church wouldn't let him in the door. He went to visit one of his parishioners one day. The screen door came open just a bit enough to show a shotgun being pointed right at his chest. The voice on the other side of the screen said, Get your nigger-loving ass off of my porch before I kill you. So, Kyle wrote to Will Campbell, thinking that Will Campbell would surely say, son, you need to get out of there. You need to let those people go, just wipe the dust off your feet and move on. But here's what Will Campbell wrote back. 
He said the issue isn't right or wrong, justice or injustice, good or bad. It's the human tragedy. And in a tragedy, you don't take sides. You just have to minister to the hurt wherever you find it. Maybe some of your church members are jerks. I changed the word there. Maybe some of your church members are jerks. But God loves them and us anyway. Simon, do you see this woman? If you follow me, if you want to go my way, if you want to find this life that I desire for everyone, you've got to see what I see in her, in you, for here is the key. He said, I came in. You didn't give me water for my feet. She's washed my feet with her tears. You didn't give me a kiss. She's been kissing my feet. You didn't give me anointment ointment for my head. She's given it to me for my feet. For she, this woman, her sins, which were many, are forgiven, which is why she shows great love. But the one who is forgiven little, Simon, loves little. Now, I don't think Jesus was saying, the woman's a big sinner and you're just a small sinner. I think what Jesus is saying is, the woman is in touch with her brokenness. She knows her need for love and for mercy. And because she's been given it by my love and my my tenderness to her, she is responding in this way. But Simon... You're not in touch with it. You're behind this mask of perfection, keeping all these laws and all these rules, and thus you're only forgiven a little. But now, Simon, here's your invitation to see that when the broken places are named and owned and viewed in the light of God, they lose their power to hold you captive. They're forgiven. And as Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It is the power to change the world. In fact, it's the only power. The only power that can change the systems and the structures and the details of our lives to liberate them to love. My friend Charlie Brestel gave me a story just this week about a Jewish couple, Michael and Julie Weiser, who were moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, for Michael to work in the local synagogue there. They were still unpacking their things in their new home. When their new phone rang, and the voice unidentified on the other end of the line began to threaten them and tell them that they weren't wanted there. That week they got a package in the mail with a bunch of racist flyers and a card that said, the KKK is watching you, you scum. They called the police. The police came to their home, looked at the material and said, oh yeah, this is the work of Larry Trapp. We know Larry, an avowed Nazi, the grand dragon of the KKK in this region. We believe that he's the one responsible for the bombing of an African-American home here in our city and as well as the Vietnamese center. The police described for the Weissers 
this grand dragon's life. He's 44 years old, they said. He leads the group, but he's wheelchair-bound. He has diabetes. And he lives in a one-room apartment by himself. Little did they know that, in fact, at that time, he was planning to bomb their synagogue. Somehow, though, the Weisers saw Larry Trapp. They saw him in their mind's eye, and they had compassion for him. The rabbi picked up the phone and called the KKK number. The voicemail, the machine answered, and he said, Larry, why do you hate us so? You don't even know us. Let's get together. Let's meet. Julia's wife decided that every day for 30 days she would send him a letter and include in it a little proverb The rabbi called again and again until one day Trapp answered the phone. Weiser offered, let me come over and help you with your groceries. Larry Trapp refused. But that's when the rethinking began. They began to talk on the phone. Larry Trapp had a television show, a cable television show where he would spew all this hatred and he, even while he was talking to Weiser, he was spewing this hatred on his TV show. He said, I can't help it. I've talked this way my whole life. And so one Shabbat, Weiser asked his congregation to pray for someone sick with the illness of bigotry and hatred. Maybe it was coincidence or maybe it was God. That night, Trapp's hands began to itch. He had to take off his swastika rings that he wore on each hand. The next day, he called the Weisers. He said, I want out, but I don't know how. Weisers said, let's meet, let's have dinner. They did. They got together for dinner. And that night at the end of the meal, Weiser, or Larry Trapp gave the Weisers his swastika rings. He said, I want out. A month later, he resigned as the leader of the Ku Klux Klan. He began to issue apologies to all the people that he had harmed over the years. It was just the very next month when Larry Trapp's doctor informed him that he had less than a year to to live. When the Weisers, his new friends, found this out, they suggested to him, why don't you move into our house? We've got this living room we don't ever use. We'll turn it into your bedroom. And that's what happened. He moved into their home. He said to them, you're doing for me what my parents should have done. They were with him to the end. And as his body began to decrease, his spirit began to increase. All because they saw him. Simon, do you see this woman? The seventh chapter of Luke is an interesting chapter. It's got several miracles in it. Jesus heals the centurion's son. He raises the widow's son from the dead. 
John the Baptist's disciples come and say, are you the one? And here's what Jesus says. You go tell John what you've seen and heard. That the blind receive their sight. Simon, do you see this woman? I think that's why Jesus went to dinner with Simon in the first place. Here's a guy who can turn water into wine, who can take the stones and make bread. He didn't need Simon's dinner. He went because he wanted Simon to see. And I think we gather this day because we want you to see. We want to see more clearly, to be the people of God in this world who sees the Naboth, who sees the woman, who sees the children behind the clothes, who sees Larry Trapp and says, come on. There's a place at the table. There's a place in our house for you. Our story today ends with Jesus and his followers going from village to village. It feels to me almost like a traveling circus. This hodgepodge of people. The 12 disciples, we've got them represented in our windows, looking so handsome. But read their stories. They were some pieces of work. Then there's the women. Mary Magdalene, who had the seven demons taken from her. Joanna, the wife of Herod's assistant. Susanna, it looks like Highland Baptist Church, frankly. (laughs) And man, they're all in. They're using their resources to announce the good news. That God is not done. And that God's love is for everyone. Let's pray together. May our eyes be opened individually and collectively. And may we grow as your people to proclaim the good news in all of its many forms in this day and time. In the name of the one who opens blind eyes, we pray. Amen. Our hymn is number 478. It is our custom to sing after the proclamation and to invite you and me to, in the singing, to solidify and rededicate ourselves to this work of love. We do so as we sing. We would welcome those who want to come and be members of Highland to make a faith profession to come as we sing. I'll be at the front. Let's stand together.